Did you notice they welcome people in before they ask me to preach? So if the preach sucks, you committed, I'm sorry, you're in. Um, so yeah, just, um, um, our, our verse of scripture that we've been really going through um, the last few weeks has been Isaiah 9. Uh, and uh, you can turn in your Bibles if you brought it, otherwise it will come on the screen. Just before that, I just want to have a quick prayer. Um, Lord, thank you that we can come here today and worship you and know you, Lord Jesus, and get to know you even more. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that joy is something you give us. And so this morning we look to receive it, Lord Jesus. And, um, and as we get to know you, we know that you'll give us more and more joy. Amen. In your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the verse uh, that we've been going through the last few weeks has been Isaiah 9, from uh, verse 2 to 7. And I'm going to just quickly read it for us again. Um, and as we read it, I wonder if you can pick out the themes that we've been actually going through. Um, these are the themes the elders picked out of this verse. Uh, prophecy faith, joy, peace, and hope. These are Advent themes. The most wonderful time of the year. Um, I love Advent. Every single year as I get older, the more this Christmas story has more meaning to me. I don't know if it's the same for you. Um, But if we read this, see if you can pick those themes out. Prophecy, faith, joy, peace, and hope. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light as light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Think of us as God's people, the nation of God. It's who we are. You have multiplied this nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We'll be unpacking some of that this morning as we look at um, the the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. For every boot, verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This beautiful promise in the scripture that to us a son is given, a child is born, a child will have the government on his shoulders and the world will never be the same again. Amen. And that's what happened. That's what we celebrate every year. We sing this carol, joy to the world. Just look at these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Written by Isaac Watts a couple of hundred years ago. It's based in Psalm 98, which I'll also read. Um, Let the sea resound in everything in it, from verse 7. Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. 
He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. These beautiful promises really come out in these scriptures of something that God was going to do and something that God did. And this morning when I want to talk about joy, you know, we could, we could have a talk about let's define joy. Let's talk about how, you know, when you open the presents on Christmas morning, you feel happiness. Well, that's not joy. And I can give you these definitions and we could go, go home with some information in our heads. But will that really give us joy? Joy isn't something that we can conjure up for ourselves. It's not something we can get if we understand it intellectually. And even once we've experienced it, or even when we do experience it, we still can't seem to um, define it. We can't seem to give a definition for it or describe it to others. It is something that happens to us, isn't it? So Luke 2, um, I imagine this song, Joy to the Earth, the Savior Reigns, this carol that we sing, is something that you... It could have been sung at uh, Luke 2 when the shepherds were given the announcement that Jesus had come. We even sang about that in the, in, the, in the carol this morning. So Luke 2 from verse 8 says this. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. See, these shepherds are out there, and joy arrives. They weren't expecting it. They were just doing what they normally do. Isn't that beautiful? In the midst of our normal day-to-day lives, the job that you do, the grudge work, just the normal things, suddenly God appears. And this is often what he does to us, just the normal things, not the, the crazy things, the amazing things, the things that we look after, uh, the time we get that career we wanted to get, or we, you know. In the normal day-to-day life, he arrives. What is it about the coming of Jesus that sparks joy? That's essentially the question I want to ask this morning. The verse continues from verse 11. This is when the angels make the announcement that brings joy. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they had made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I love the way the scripture juxtaposes the fear that they first experience when this angel arrives and the joy that results from this experience. Fear is what happens to us so often when we think of God, when we first encounter God, and when we tend to encounter God on and on. Uh, The fear of our mortality, our smallness, the seeming purposelessness of our lives, our sinfulness, and our knowledge of judgment. We experience fear because we know that there's a certain condemnation on us for the sins that we've committed. 
is an interesting way to, lead the script, to read the scriptures. comes back from the reformers, where they understood to separate, and that's what God does to show us. It's like a mirror that he shows us, a mirror that he shows in front of us that we can see ourselves, see for who we really are, what we've really been doing. But then he always comes, his last word to us is always his gospel. Always his gospel that he has come with grace and mercy and floods this grace and mercy over us and swallows our sins up and makes us new. So we can almost see this juxtaposed there. First, the angels experience fear, right? But then the grace comes. Don't fear, says God. I give you news of great joy. I'm not just giving you, telling you not to fear, but I'm giving you more than that. I'm giving you news of great joy. And they announce that the Christ has come. And note for who it is. It is for all people. Not for the select few. Not for the few that do the things. It's for all people. Right? And what is this news? It is news of great. Jesus came. Everything was turned upside down. In our day and age, we might not realize. But when you look at history, you realize how much of the world changed from that moment that Jesus was born into this world. Jesus is the most influential person in the world. That's undisputed. His influence is felt through everything, not just in our culture, but in the other cultures of the world. Whether people understand him or not, his name is known. There are unreached peoples who don't know that name. But as time has gone on, that name has become more and more well-known above every other name. It's a, a fact. That's not just because I'm in on this thing. It's true, right? And he's influenced everything. Everyone wants to say, well, what I believe, my politics or whatever is Jesus. And put that aside and just realize the influence that Jesus has had, that people want to associate with him in some way. Want to say, well, Jesus would agree with me. Like that shows you that there's been an influence. Something about what Jesus, how that has changed the way the world has viewed children from those times. Children weren't worth much in those times. The only worth that they had was what they would bring to the family name. They had to prove themselves. They weren't intrinsically valuable. And Jesus is like, no, guys, don't let the children come to me. That one verse of scriptures changed the way we view children throughout history. And there's many more things we can unpack and show how Jesus changed. Something about when he came in, it starts with the story, changed everything. So just look at the story for a second. And I believe, I mean, I just sat and thought about this when I was preparing this, and I was like, what great joy is found in this story, right? Mary was not the kind of person you would expect God's Savior to come from. She was an obscure, poor girl living in a despised province called Nazareth, and yet she's the one that gets the announcement, right? Not the important people, but the despised. What happened to Mary and Joseph was not pleasant. I'm sorry, I'm a man. I don't know how uncomfortable, but I imagine pretty uncomfortable, right? Okay, I don't know how long that trip really took, but it took a while. And they get there, and obviously no one wants them. They probably saw there's a pregnant woman here. She's going to have a baby. We don't want that in our lodging. There's no space for that kind of thing. And so no one wants to, no one wants to accept them. And by the way, they must have known something about them because all of their families were supposed to be there for the census, if you know the story. People must have known this is Mary, the one who's pregnant, but we are not. Sh- we know this isn't Joseph's kid. Right? Can you imagine how she felt? She was on display. And at the same time, she's giving birth to the Savior of the world. 
And while she was on display in one sense, she had some, there was some publicity, but it's not the kind that you would have wanted. There's another sense in which no one knew and no one cared. Right. Jesus was not born in a palace with admiring attendants and servants. Couple, the gossip probably going around them. I mean, isn't it amazing that God would choose a scandalous situation to bring the Savior of the world into this world? Doesn't it tell you something about God's heart? The way he views things. The way we judge what we believe right and wrong. If it was me, things should have been clean, effective, efficient, right? And Jesus should have been in the most powerful family where he could bring the most influence into the world. Surely that's the way you do it, God. If you want to really influence and change things, put them in the halls of power. And that's all God does. He does the complete opposite. Isn't that amazing? Does this say something about who this God is we serve and what is he saying to you today? The difficulties and the trouble and the sufferings we go with, that's where he is found. He's found in the low and despised, those low moments. That's where he is found. You're like, I don't know. Where is God? When you're going through the suffering and today I just felt like God wants to say to us, I see you. I see the suffering. I see the difficulties you're going through. That's when I see you and that's where I am. We see that through the story. The first admirers of the baby were not kings or queens or important people, but shepherds. Rulers and kings were unaware of what was happening. Historians and writers were kept uninformed. The high priest wasn't let on the secret. You would think God would tell at least the high priest. I mean, this is this Messiah for the Jewish people, but didn't tell him. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious rulers who had all the answers, had no idea of what was happening. The only people who seemed to know about it were from a different culture from far away. Right? Our first saying that this king is for everyone. The outsiders came and they understood. God told them, not the insiders. Isn't that fascinating? No one told the Roman governor. I mean, there was Herod. Herod was a vessel king, a type of administrator of the region. He was kind of half Jewish. He was descended from Esau. He's part of the Edomite tribe. You can see the political turmoil and because the Edomites were enemies. And yet one of the enemies was ruling over them. And the enemy wanted to kill when he heard that a Messiah was coming. He got so insecure. Oh, kill the baby. Like the baby's going to change things. He's the only guy that seemed to know there. But shepherds who were considered as well, they couldn't keep ceremonial clean, so they couldn't, there were things that they couldn't partake in in their own culture. They were not city dwellers or educated people. And in those days, the educated and the city dwellers, just like today, God visits them. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> this is what James 2 verse 5 says, Has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom. It was not the rich and the powerful that God brought his promised beside kid. In fact, God wasn't bothered with them. The humble birth of Jesus, the true king of the universe. Compare that with the man later on in the scripture, Herod, who, who people are praising him, saying he's the words of a God, not of a man when he speaks and he dies. He falls over, dies and gets eaten by worms. 
the halls of power, the, the powerful of the world, with all the pomp and the ceremony and the glory and the reputation and the influence, how do they end? Dies by being eaten by worms. Juxtaposed to the humble king who comes in his humble circumstances. Mary probably didn't even have swaddling cloth, it seems. I mean, if you just, some of the cultural studies, she probably just found what she could to try and keep her baby warm, put it in this manger that someone cleaned out for them, cleaned for her, cleaned out for her. The contrast between the despised of the world who God chooses and the powerful systems of the world that oppress us, that's where God is found. Mary's song in... Um, in Luke 1, I'm not going to read it, but I'll just take some of the highlights. If you go read Mary's song in Luke 1, you see that she says how God favors lowliness, how he scatters proud people, how he reduces the powerful to weakness, how he sends rich people away empty-handed. So Christ comes to turn the entire system around. These are the places where God is found. In this world you will have trouble, says Jesus later on, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In those times when the systems seem to feel like they're pressing you and you feel powerless and you feel, I wish I had the power to do something about this, that's where God is found in your life. He sees you. And so the announcement was God is entering the human race in a unique way. Incarnation, which is the theological word we give to this, means the atonement of humanity. Two theological words. Incarnation means Christ, the divine, became human, conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Crazy stuff, right? And in the act of becoming human, God atoned humanity. Atonement is a word that just means at one moment, All right? He brings humanity and the divine together, reconciles us to each other, reconciles the nations to each other, all the wars that divide us, all our prejudices, all these things. He breaks those things down and he reconciles us to each other and reconciles us to God. All the dividing walls between us and God are broken down, right? I don't know. But why can he just appear one day and die for us? Why did he have to become human? Have you ever wondered about that? What's the deal of becoming human? And there's so much going on there, and I'm going to try my best to unpack it this morning to try and give you a bit of joy and understanding. Wow, what Jesus did was amazing. And that's where we found our joy. And by, by the humanity and the divine coming together in one person, and the divine suffering humanity, suffering what it, like, what it means to be a human being in this suffering, difficult world. Right, bringing these two things together... And then getting victory in that. See, Jesus suffers the things we suffer. He suffers the temptations we suffer. He suffers the sinful world that we suffer. He suffers all these things to the point that he goes to the cross, but he has victory over it. And so that means it's like a, a Jesus does by becoming part of humanity. He gets the victory for us. The whole team enjoys the victory. And not only that, when he fills us with his spirit, when we come to him in faith, that victory is applied to our lives, not just theoretically, but practically. Because his spirit overcame the temptations of the world, so we can overcome the temptations of the world. Does that make sense? And this unity, this unity between the divine and humanity is something that is permanent. Right? By God doing this in history, there is now man in heaven 
This is a crazy concept to think about. But for all eternity, the divine and humanity were put together in Jesus. Does it make sense? Nothing will change. God loves us. That won't change. He's not going to go back in history and undo what he did. He did it once for all, and that was that. And so when we're battling, does God really love me? Yes. Born, coming to die for you and for me. No exceptions. None whatsoever. No class we can see is an exception. So atonement and redemption begins with a baby. The word became flesh. Born as one under the law, says Galatians 4. By becoming man, Christ suffers the effects of sin in our world, but also the temptations of our world. Sorry, I'm just going through my notes here. I went a little bit ahead. Christ choosing to love in the face of how he was treated, ultimately in the face of death and injustice, destroys the devil and swallows evil. He did this as divine, but also as human, opening the door for humanity, not just the divine, to enter in by faith and overcome the devil and evil. So in other words, he opens the door for us as well to overcome evil in this world as we are in him. Overthrowing the entire system while at it, not only reversing the curse, but sending mankind on his original destiny. Makes sense what God did there. And the Bible talks about this in Romans 5, that there was once Adam, right? Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And anyone found in Adam, anyone found to be part of that humanity, as well receives the curse put on that humanity. But then there's a second Adam, Jesus, who succeeded where the first failed. And anyone found in the second Adam is part of a new humanity. So I'm just going to quickly go through this list here. By uniting mankind divine together, God creates a new man in Jesus and creates a new mankind from all those who are in Jesus, all those who believe in him and have chosen to be part of this family, a new family. Those who believe in Jesus are spiritually connected. So, A, we have his work and his right in us by his spirit. We're united into him, a union of Christ. A mystery like marriage, a relational reality. D, so when we're united into the second Adam, we have a new bloodline, a new family as it were. You have a new family. The Bible calls you a new creation. It says you've been born again. That's what Jesus did. The same spirit that overcomes the temptation of this world because the divine humanity came together now lives in us. So that we too could overcome the temptation of the world. So that we too may push back the darkness of the world being salt and light in it. Part of God's new family, being in Christ, means that we live differently. So that we too may live in perfect love, live out perfect love to others. That's what the scripture means about being perfective, I mean perfected. So that we can establish a kingdom on this worth of a new mankind. New creatures born again who subscribe to a different way of doing things, an upside down kingdom with a new, as we used to be. We're called to live a different life. Will that spark joy in you this morning? You are made new, whether you feel it or not. When you came to faith in Christ, you were made new. Made into a new creation, born again into him. Put into a new family, put into a new kingdom that is upending the old kingdom of this world. 
And this is the people of the church, the new humanity. We are the first fruits of a new mankind, a new kingdom, a new system and structure of the world. And we charge to take this message out to all mankind because Christmas is about the fact that the new has come. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand when he came. And it ends in Revelation with the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we live in the middle of these two realities right now. Even in the darkness we experience, we know that God's sovereignty is at work and his kingdom is advancing. We don't live in fear, no longer slaves to fear, but in confidence we know that beasts and antichrists will rise throughout history. And that will continue, but God puts an end to every single one and will do that again. And that the world, despite its restlessness, its history, is moving in a direction of Christ as King. And the kingdom of peace, with the Prince of Peace, is being established over everything. The question this morning is, do you believe it? Do you believe the one who said these things, who proved it with his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his giving of his spirit? What he says today? Now, every other message... In this world is a message of what you must do. Not really a very joyful art or, you know, all these things, these philosophies, these ideas, these things we, we decide will be the path to life. But who can rejoice at another program of endeavors laid upon us? Is there any joy in that? Just another philosophy or idea. But this is not a message of what we must do. This is a message of what God is doing and has done. He came to announce to the shepherds that joy had come to the world because Jesus had come and achieved all these things for us and more. I hope that made sense to me. I, to this morning, I tried my best to bring a bit of theology in. hope it made sense. Um, but there's so much actually to grasp in what it is that God did. And as we grasp it, and I just pray, Jesus, that we would grasp it more and more. As we grasp and give us more revelation of who you are, what you did. And then you would fill us with joy, Lord God. And we thank you that you bring joy to us. And so we receive it this morning, Lord.